first five rows heard me say that. Good morning. <laughs> I may have bitten off more than I can chew this week. I foolishly planned to preach a sermon on the week that my daughter was getting married, but fortunately my wife is a superhuman and she did all the work, so I was able to get a little work done this week, but uh, it was an incredible celebration, a great time to be with family. We have uh, everyone kind of in town right now and, and sharing the house this week, and it's just been amazing to be around the little grand monkeys and with my mom being in town and everything and just having us all together and celebrating all that the Lord's given us. It's been an incredible joy and something that we don't take lightly nor forget to thank the Lord for all the blessings that he gives us. Um, and so uh, it is just something that we're incredibly proud of and very excited to be able to uh, if you caught that, you know, the Parity family is also here at Faith, and, and Peter is one of our elders. And, and contrary to popular opinion, that was not a requirement to become an, uh, an elder, is whether or not you had an eligible kid to match up to a small. I know it seems like it's going in that direction, but it's not the intention, I promise. But, um, but anyway, we love Will, and we love the Parity family, and we're so happy that uh, we've been united this way and stuff, and really proud of our kids. Um, at the ceremony, or before the ceremony started, one of our little nephews, little five-year-old, came up to Madison in her bridal gown and everything, and he was so excited. He goes, we made it to your funeral. <laughs> something tells me that his father had been sending some subliminal messages along the way or something like that. But but it's it's interesting because there's a little bit of correlation to where we're going with uh where we're going this morning because when we think of uh the more natural places of celebration like a wedding or birthdays or things along those lines we we think okay this is a time for us to to just be exuberant and to be thankful and and all those things and we should be if i say the word eulogy to you what do you think of you think of funeral and sadness in the Hebrew expression, a eulogy was one of celebration, of honor, of, of making the most important things the most important things. And when we come to the text in Ephesians 1, what Paul is actually just kind of going on a rant about from verses 3 to 14 is actually a eulogy. So you think about, well, why would a eulogy be a celebration? Well, when we come before um, people at a funeral, if the life was well-lived, if the person was well-loved, then we often feel the pressure of how do I sum up such an incredible life and, and, and the meaning that that person had to me in just a few moments. And there's that pressure of how do I boil this down in a, a eulogy? You want it to be expressive and appreciative and and, and, and like Pastor Tom said earlier, if there's an ugly cry in there, then it draws us in even more, right? Because we're, we're moved by that person's loss. And, and I've been in other situations where sometimes you can tell people are trying to find even the nicest thing to say about the person they're saying goodbye to. And, and you leave those environments kind of going, Lord, help me to live a life that, that people would miss. Help me to live a life that, that people would appreciate, that people would, would say, okay, we paid attention. We heard the lessons. We saw the blessings and stuff that come from that person being in our life. And, and to see the opposite is absolutely heartbreaking. And, uh, and it feels like from a bigger picture that it's often meaningless, but a eulogy is meant to express joy and celebration. That's why often in our Christian circles, we say that we're having a celebration of life, not just having a funeral. So we're not going to be able to get into all that Paul is saying, but just know as he starts these 
these, this eulogy, it's with this exuberant expression. He can't wait to tell you the things that are stirring in his heart. They are bursting out of him. And that's what takes us to our passage. I was planning to do a little bit of revisit to last week, but for time's sake, I think I just want to jump ahead. Trust that you heard those things from last week. Um, I'm sure because we are teaching in context through the book of Ephesians, we will revisit the setup because Paul spent some incredible time doing some very intentional things in his greeting. So I encourage you to go back and catch that if you didn't already. But to sum it up, we were cautioned to recognize and properly utilize the vast treasure we have in Christ. As opposed to, and you might remember the illustration we used of that that woman miser who had a $100 million in her bank account and yet for the lack of wanting to spend even a penny of it, she was mostly hungry. She wouldn't eat hot oatmeal because it was too expensive to heat the water and her child ended up having a leg amputated because she couldn't find free health care. So the caution to us was to recognize and utilize the vast treasure we have as opposed to being ignorant of this treasure or, or, or a hoarder or miserly with the great wealth that we've been given in Christ. Now, Paul is going to help us unpack that treasure chest and go, these are the jewels and the crowns and the gold and everything that are inside of that. And he's going to break it out for us kind of piece by piece. But remember, he's saying it in a manner of celebration. Paul has a lot to celebrate. He's gone from having the reputation and the career of being a church destroyer to a church builder. He was clearly handpicked by the Lord. If you understand the account of his story, he's going along minding his own business and his own business was to persecute anybody who claimed to believe in Jesus Christ. It was his passion. It was his mission. He was called a zealot to chase down, hunt down, and yes, oversee or supervise the killing of those various leaders in that movement. He thought it was an affront to the holy God. And so he made it his his life's mission to chase them down until he was interceded he was interrupted I should say by by Jesus Christ himself the the resurrected Christ stops him on the road blinds him so he can't see and that blindness lasted for days to say why are you fighting against me Paul basically had to admit because I, I thought I was, I thought I was honoring God. Who is this that's speaking to me? He says, it's Jesus Christ, the very one that they crucified, the very one that you're persecuting. I think it would be silly of us not to just kind of focus on the fact Paul was doing something in a complete opposite direction. Jesus says, nope, time for you to follow me. You're going in that direction. Paul said, got it. I was wrong. It's, it's okay for us to imagine the story a little bit and kind of go, you know, I could see where God would, would have a choice in the matter. I could see why he would pick Paul because there's several reasons I would say, because one, it would demonstrate a very big defeat of one of God's enemies. God's flexing his muscles. Okay, Paul, you think you can fight me and, and squash me and kill my servants like you did Stephen? So he could have a big headline. God defeats the, the little Paul. Or maybe it's because um, he is a, a big antagonist to God and God is, is, is saying, I'm trying to eliminate the number of enemies that I have. So we'd say, okay, I can see why he'd pick Paul. Certainly makes for a big story. 
if, if God can turn a life like Paul's around and, and educate him on what it really means to serve God and honor God, then he gets even more glory. And we love a good turnaround story, don't we? And clearly we can see, well, we know what Paul became. I mean, yeah, God had a plan in Paul's life. I mean, he became a church builder. He became a missionary. He became a spreader of the gospel. No wonder why God chose the mighty Paul, because he could do all those things. It's easy for us to wrap our heads around that choice, but, but God, because God's choices are agreeable when he makes the reasons clear, when we can see the outcome, we can see the results. We're like, okay, I, I get that, but not so much when we can't make sense of it. This has been my experience. How many of you have ever been in that most uncomfortable, unless you were like a star athlete, most uncomfortable experience of getting handpicked for some pickup sport? People are like, I'll take him or I'll take her. And the whole time, you're just kind of kicking the dirt, waiting. Nobody's picking me. And then they, they take you because they have to, because it's awkward if you just say, I don't want him. <laughs> it's like the last kid standing. Okay, we'll take him. When we think of God's choosing, which is where our text is going to go, is a, a major focus is on God's, a major focus on God's choice in the matter of salvation. We often think it's like the kids on the sidelines getting, um, I want him, uh, not, not him. Uh, I want him. Uh, no, not that one over there. No, you in the back, you come up. And, and we, we know we, we've been in that experience before. It's based on either merit or talent. We're picking the best athletes or maybe it's for popularity's sake. Either I want to be well liked by this person. So I'm going to pick them or because they are the most popular and picking them. We have all kinds of superficial reasons why this uh, atmosphere conjures up a lot of negative emotions for us. And then we impugn God and say, well, if he's choosing some and not others, isn't he leaving some of those kids on the sidelines like that? And it's based on our experience. It's a valid question. And I'm not saying I've got great answers for all of this. But I would say probably a better example for us to look at. And again, this isn't going to tie all the loose ends together. And that's going to be a key point of what we're talking about this morning is think about it like in an emergency situation. And for some reason this week in my mind, I had this image of a rope bridge that people are crossing. And as it gets weakened and as it's starting to fall apart and everything, and then it lets go. And then people in terror and difficulty or looking for any form of rescue, and there's somebody on the other end who's reaching a hand out and saying, just grab hold, reach, take it. You know, often when we think of God's choice as a matter of sovereignty and his choosing us to be his children, we forget that we were all sliding off this bridge. There was an urgent threat to our lives. And at the same time, we have this very uncomfortable emotion of relief that I was able to reach up and extend a hand and grab it. And then I'm, I'm somehow on the safety of the cliff now. There's relief in that. Oh, I've survived. And then instant grief. But not everybody did. What do we do with that? Do we explain away the portions of the scripture that confuse us or unsettle us? Or do we press into some measure of greater understanding or faith? I was hesitant to come to this book entirely, all of Ephesians, because of this one passage. 
I'm not a big fan of endless debates. I don't like what we used to call in Bible college coffee shop theology, where people would just sit around, well, I think it's this, and I believe it's this, and they muse and all this kind of stuff. I've just never been a big fan of talking about the things that no one has a solution to. Excuse me. Also, I knew that people would have very passionate positions from studied opinions on the matter of God's choice. There's a lot of angles or rabbit trails that we could certainly go down. There'd be a lot that would be tempting to chase. But I guess more than anything else is that kind of image of the rope bridge breaking. It's our personal discomfort with the negative side of the doctrine of election. For us, it carries pain and and confusion. And yet at the same time, I started off with the meaning of eulogy to even remind myself that I can't skip over the parts of scriptures that I, that I can't fully explain or I don't quite comprehend or even the things that I can't quite swallow because Paul is saying, no, these are things, these are truths to be celebrated. So if I say, well, is Paul ignorant of the pain and confusion that also this belief might stir up in us? Certainly he's not. Yet he launches the book of Ephesians and starts here for a reason. Now, uh, our expositional preaching, what we practice here predominantly at faith, aims at um, uh, providing context of the scripture while helping us apply the principles that God has for us to live live by. So we want to give the context, but we also want to provide some support of the debate or or the misunderstandings where it's necessary. In our context is that Paul was freaking out. He was ecstatic. He couldn't wait to tell us all the treasure that we have in Christ. He said that we are elected saints and he couldn't shut up about it. That's because Paul's primary focus in this eulogy is on what God has done for us. This is the heartbeat of the gospel. If you're ever tripped up and you're saying, I don't know how to tell people about Jesus, always bring it back to what has he done for us? Not so much what have I done to prove myself worthy or how much has he cleaned me up and changed my life. All those things are are okay and they have their place. But if you're ever tripped up and stuck and say, I just don't know how to share my faith, start with what he's done for you. Because that is the heart of the gospel. So let's get into our text. And I think it's important to remember that the point of the Ephesian letter is to build up the church to unity before the world so that the world will see the glory of God in his bride. So we, with that, we get into a bit of review in verse 3. Where he says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Paul wants to start this march toward unity to remind us how he put this whole thing together. He's been building the church from from what we're going to discover in the scriptures from eternity past. But even in human history, he's been building the church for thousands of years. How did he assemble the pieces? Why did he pick the people he picked? And we're looking around going, I don't know, right? But he did. And this is what Paul wants us to see, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So let's look at how God brought the church together. And it's clear Right out of the gate, what Paul's saying is he did it by his own choice. Now, we have to talk about the biblical fact of 
of election, God's sovereign choice. And he did it in several different ways. And what we're going to do is just briefly examine those several different ways so we can see a pattern here. We know that he chose the people of Israel, that he had his eyes set on a nation and he poured his heart into them. It's not that he said, you're all instantly saved because you're Israelites. He said, no, I'm choosing myself a people that I can show my power and my wonder through. We would call that theocratic choice, theocratic election. This is how he said it in Deuteronomy 7. He says, talking to the, Israel, the, the people of Israel, he says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Holy, we'll talk about, is set aside, unique for his purpose. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why? Why did he pick us? Well, it wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. It gives us a hint that the Lord is saying, I chose you specifically because no one would see it coming. I don't know if you've ever seen that. If you follow the sports and you see drafts and things like that, and they get, they pick somebody obscure or randomly, and everyone's going, why would you pick him? What did you think he was? And then he turns out to be something great. Well, this is what the Lord did with Israel, where he picked them because of his ability and his capability, his power to be shown through them. So they would say, clearly, they have God on their side. There's no way these people could pull this off. That's theocratic election. And then within those people, as an example, he said, I'm going to take one of those tribes, the tribes of Levi, and I'm going to appoint them to be priests. So they better learn how to be good butchers. They better be available to cover the sins of the people, all those kinds of things. That was going to be that tribe's occupation. So we have a vocational election where God says, I'm even going to appoint the Levitical priesthood from this tribe to be um, set apart for my purposes. They would have a unique lifestyle. They would have a unique purpose. They would just, and they would feel like, I wonder what we're going to do for a family career or family business. Like, sorry, you're a Levite. You're going to go into the butchering world. And why do you keep talking about butchering? Because that's what I think of when I think of the, the, uh, the gore of being a priest in the Old Testament time, something my stomach could not handle. I'm glad I get to do what I do with you guys. What God also does is he engages in salvational election. And this is what Paul is talking about. This is predetermined individuals being drawn to God's love. John 6, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. That's a very strong word. He says, and I will raise him up on the last day. In the Greek, the understanding of draw is this irresistible force. And it was common in the literature of the day to, to relate that to a desperately hungry man. And he sees a, a, a plate of food available to him. What's he going to do? No one would blame him for starting to chow down. That's what that irresistible force feels like. Think again about our rope bridge rescue. Somebody is reaching down to save us. What are we going to do? Well, I want to know more about, I don't know, your politics. Or I want to know whether or not I'm going to owe you after you get me up onto this cliff. Am I going to be forever in your debt? Or I want to know a little bit more about whether or not, you know, and fill in the blank. No, it's, it's urgent. It's rescue. And someone's willing to help me. I'm going to take them up on that. One of the I think a couple of the reasons, there's plenty, but I think a couple of the reasons that I could come up with that 
make it difficult for us to just hear something like what I just read out of John 6, that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The reason why that doesn't go without some kind of debate in our minds or even between us in our coffee shop theology environment is because we have difficulty with paradoxes in Scripture, especially the ones that are harder to explain. And this one is difficult to explain because then the natural reaction to hearing that God draws all people first is to be like, so does man not have a choice in the matter? And then we put those two things at war with one another. I think it's best to view this doctrine in the sense of that paradox where that tension needs to live. And it's not foreign to us. I believe that the faith that we have, the knowledge that we have from God's word makes more sense than anything else I've ever heard in my entire life. The further I go, the more that I study, I find myself, I'm like you, I read this and I hear somebody teach me more about it. I'm like, oh, this actually makes sense. I've heard so much about faith that I've started to equate it as like, even though none of it makes sense, you got to believe it anyway. But the reality is, is that there are great, what we would call systems of theology, great points of doctrine and everything that tie so much of this together. And there's this logical flow to all that God has done so that, yes, we are exercising faith, but it isn't without reason. And so the more we dig in, we run into still, though, there are things that we can't tie all the loose ends together. Why? Because we are finite people without a full understanding by God's own choosing that he didn't give us. Places like that would be, we say in scripture that it was written by human beings, but it's all God's word. Now there's systems of theology and there's doctrines that explain how we arrive at that, but still there's a tension there for us. There's a mystery. I don't know where to draw the line. I, we just got done studying the gospel of John and we were reading the personality basically of the writer, John as he was sharing the words about Jesus. And yet the scripture says that he was led by the Holy Spirit, moved by the Holy Spirit to write the things that he wrote down. We understand from scripture that Jesus is fully God, but he is also fully man. That salvation is eternally secure once we have it. That God has made it something of our possession that we even can't undo, even if we said, you know, I'm tired of this. He says, no, you're saved. But also we understand through the scriptures that this is, is born out of our experience through perseverance to the end. You ever come across those passages that make it sound like, I didn't think I was supposed to earn my salvation, but this makes it sound like I'm supposed to work harder. Christianity itself we express as being a total commitment, a following, which is true. But then we also hear that this life is all of Jesus Christ, empowered only by him. The point in this is that we need to leave room in our lives and in our hearts for mystery. The reason why, even though I believe so many of the dots are connected in good logical thought in our faith, but the reason is it's called faith for a reason. I can't explain where the end of both of these ropes that we have uh, tension on, where they end. But I always don't feel the need that I have to either. So paradoxes make it difficult for us to accept this passage of scripture or the extremes uh, of these doctrines, how people carry them out. They're classically referred to as Arminianism, which respond, which uh, identifies mostly with man having a choice. I chose to follow God. He just made it available. I chose to follow him. And then 
And the counter to that is Calvinism, which says God's predetermined it. You, you know, and then the emphasizes you didn't have a choice. And those are the labels that are thrown at both of those things. And then we have two different camps and then they start going, I'm an Arminian. Oh, I'm a Calvinist and all this kind of stuff. We see these bad extremes of this doctrine being carried out. We, we hear people say, well, if, if, uh, if God had everything predetermined, then why do we pray? If God had everything predetermined, then why do we have to tell others how to believe or any of those kinds of things? Those are be failures of these doctrines, but man's failure to uphold godly truth doesn't negate that truth. Just because we mess it up doesn't make a thing untrue. And the Bible combats extremes with commands. Why should we pray? Well, because the Lord said to do so. Why should we go tell people about Jesus? Because the Lord said to do so. We don't know who those that are chosen are. Only the Lord does. A couple more verses for us to wrestle with just because it's fun to do. John fifteen sixteen. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Paul wrote for us in Romans 3, as it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. And yet at the same time, we go out and we find people that we believe are seeking after God. They are drawn to something that they want answers for, so we present Jesus. We need to be better at holding these things in tension and saying, I can't explain it all. I know what the Lord does in his strength and his wisdom, and I know what he's commanded me to do as a result of that. God is assembling and has assembled his church by his own choice, but he has also assembled it by his eternal plan. Remember we asked a question a few weeks ago, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? We so often think that God is just figuring things out as he, as he goes, or he's, he's got new information that's come his way that he didn't realize before, but that isn't how the Lord works, right? And so the scriptures tell us here in this, in this, um, in this verse that before, that he did this before the foundation of the world. Or as Peter puts it, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. This was an immense plan, one that was intact even before he created us. Which would logically remove this thing that we earn it somehow. It would remove merit or performance on our part or choice. I like how MacArthur kind of challenges our views sometimes of wanting to water down God's sovereignty in these things. He says, any teaching that diminishes the sovereign electing love of God by giving more credit to men, that's in their just deciding it all, it's all on their shoulders, also diminishes God's glory, thus striking a blow at the very purpose of salvation. So those are only a couple of, uh, uh, of explanations of how God brought the church together. And then we should ask the question, why? Why would he do such a thing? This one has baffled me before. I've shared with you my expression about it's amazing to me that he has chosen to share his glory through us who have to keep reminding ourselves what it means to get along, how to love one another, support one another, give to him what's due him, all those kinds of things. Like we, we don't really deserve this, do we? And yet this is the vehicle in which he's chosen to share his glory. So why did God, why, why God brought the church together? Paul explains for us again, picking up in verse four. 
that we, that is the church, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul makes it very clear that God had intention for bringing you and I to the table, that it wasn't just, hey, that's great, we got picked for the team, but he had very specific purposes in calling us to salvation. And the first was to make us holy. And we always have to explain this because in our vernacular, in our in our kind of context, we think of holy things as, oh, um, you know, and robes and candles and all those kinds of things. But there is a sense in which those things, those trappings have turned out the way they are because they are to be completely separate or set apart from the normal. Being holy means being unique for God's purpose. You remember last week we were talking about how Paul reached into the Greek culture and, and talked about sanctification and set apartness in a way that they were thinking, well, that's just what we do with our buildings. Like that's our temple over there. We do all of our worship and all of our other despicable practices. We do that there, but we leave it there. And, and Paul is saying in that same sense, I want you to see, you Gentiles, you non-Jews, that you are also called to be holy, that you are to be set apart. You are to be separate from everything else that goes on as normal. And that's why he called them saints. This is a word that is shared with sanctification. And sanctification isn't something that we normally talk about in our day-to-day. Kind of, to me, sounds... Um, like sanitation. I usually think cleanliness when I think sanctification. It's not a direct parallel. It's not all that it is, but it is gives you that idea of how does the Lord take me out of the mud that I was born in, that my sin has put me in, and start cleaning me up for his purposes. That's where sanctification is more than just sanitation. He's not just cleaning me off. He's, he's making me holy for a purpose. And we understand that that this is something that happens to our position before God, that we, once we have accepted Christ, once we are, once we are humbled and bow our knee before Him and we say, I, I receive your salvation, I ask for your forgiveness of my sins, that He positionally puts us in that place of holiness in Him. But He says, but it's not to stay. You start to move forward. You're supposed to walk in a progressive way towards growing in greater holiness. And this, I think, counters the notion that many have lodged at, at um, the, the attack, I guess, if, that many have lodged against the doctrine of election. That, well, if you believe in election, then you shouldn't have to do better. You shouldn't have to live more godly. But God says, no, I chose you for the purpose of making you more holy. But also, to put it in my crude way, God chose us to show off. Not because you and I are worth showing off necessarily. Well, you are. I am not. I don't want to get in trouble with anybody. But I think God did this, and Paul makes it clear. He did this to demonstrate his love. It says, in his love, he predestined us. And don't mix this up. Love is always connected to the doctrine of election. We, because of our finite understanding, we go towards the negative side. Well, he chooses some and not others. But this isn't how it's connected in the scriptures. It's always attached to God's love. And that's where trust needs to come in. We're telling our kids all the time, you don't understand why I'm doing what I'm doing, but you have to trust that I love you. Kids are like, yeah, whatever. 
Funny way of showing it. But the reality is, as we get older, we start to what? Look back on the things our parents did and we start to see how motivated by love all of it was. Even some of the poorer expressions of it or the attempts that were weaker or something like that. We're like, we give them a pass. We go, well, they're doing it the best they could because they loved us. They just didn't know what to do. We have to remember, we have to apply faith to say whatever God's choice is, whatever his plan is, it is coming from, as Mike had had so helpfully shared with us earlier, it's coming from a place of his love. He wants to do this for the good of his people. Ephesians 2 is going to tell us when we get to verses 4 and 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love and with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He says it was in love that he predestined us and predestination is always in scriptural terms linked to salvation and not predestined others to hell. We would say, why would God send anybody to hell? But remember, the rope bridge was breaking. Because of sin entering our world, the ropes were were deteriorating. The boards were starting to crack and all of mankind was heading there and God has elected and chosen to save some. And he's done this for a purpose, to make us his own. He's adopted us. There are many uh, in our midst and those that we're related to that have gone through the high cost of adoption. They can tell us that it's not only financially expensive, but it's emotionally expensive. And yet going through it, they wouldn't change any of those costs because it was worth it with all the joy, with all the pain, with all the struggle. In my mind, it's a very heroic endeavor. And it's incredible in how it demonstrates the love of God because he's, he's selected us and he's rescued us from the situation. We wouldn't necessarily impugn those that have gone and adopted a child and say, well, why didn't you take all of them? The difference is, is that you and I, when we were being rescued, <clears throat> we weren't cute little babies. We were his enemies. We were moving in opposite direction. Think of Paul's story. We were moving in opposite direction of him saying, I've got better things to do. I've got better ways of doing it. I've got my life figured out. I want nothing to do with yours. And yet in that moment, he loved us anyway. In fact, verse 8 is going to tell us in this first chapter that God lavished his love on us. He poured it over us. He's like that, that parent who says, we're taking the baby home and I can't wait till he's ours. I can't wait till he's in the house and I can't wait to give him everything he would have never had if we hadn't intervened in his life. This is who God is. He's rescuing us. He's adopting us. But not just as these little babies, but with the expectation and with all the privilege of being adult children. The little baby can't spend the inheritance, has to wait till he's 18 or 25 or whatever the rules are in the documentation. But God has adopted us to say, I have made you adult sons and daughters. This is why Paul is calling this a treasure, a treasure that is available so that we can begin to spend it appropriately. God has lavished his love on us as adult sons and daughters. Why would he do all this? Why would he make us his own? And it's to bring himself praise. Paul says that God has made us acceptable. 
You and I weren't presentable by anything that we could do. It was him that came in, cleaned us up, set us right, put us in good standing before him. Who gets the credit for for someone becoming presentable who wasn't before? I've talked to many a men who have who have credited their wives for making them even an acceptable human being. They've said, I was, I was on a wrong course. I was on a collision course and I don't know what she saw in me, but out of her mercy is all I can uh, 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 understand it to be. She came in and she made me somebody, helped me become somebody that you see before you now. I've heard that story time and time again. This is the credit that the Lord gets for transforming us, for making us acceptable. And the rescued, the ones that have been transformed, are the ones that shout his praises the loudest. When we understand what we've been saved from, when we understand all that we had to offer was nothing but filthy rags, and he turned it into something glorious and beautiful, something that he is proud of, something that he accepts, something that he is uh, letting his glory to be seen through. We can't help but to shout about the one who has done that. That's why Paul is 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 just going on a a long rant. This is one sentence, verses 3 through 14. He says one continuous sentence here because you can't shut him up about the fact that he was on a collision course, course with hell. And the Lord Jesus Christ intervened and rescued him and made him new. God has called us. He has saved us by his own choosing. Why me? Why you? I don't know. I mean, not specifically, not personally. But it should motivate us to make our lives count for him. I know his ultimate reasons for choosing any of us was to make us like Jesus. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He wants us to live like Jesus, to think like Jesus, to show compassion like Jesus, to offer forgiveness like Jesus, to walk in his steps. He's made us his adult children, ready to utilize this inheritance that he's given to us, this vast treasure. And he's done it in us and in any of us and in churches around the world and church in the history, church in the future to make his love, his character and his power famous on the earth. And he's going to do that with the smallest of people, with the most insignificant people, with the least likely people so that his glory can show off and brag. How is God choosing to show off in your life? Not for your own show off, but what is he trying to do? What is he doing in your midst that you're like, this is only God. I don't have any ability or power to pull this off. Are you blocking any of his shine? What areas is he taking you from living like a child to being adopted as an adult with a full inheritance, with a full set of resources? Are you welcoming this growth? Are you welcoming this new position in life? Or are you resisting him? 
I know that this is often a difficult doctrine, and I know I didn't scratch the itch of many who have studied this and things, and we didn't get into the weeds of this, and we probably won't linger on it more than just this one week. But I think it's going to help us set up the tone of Paul's celebration, his eulogy, for us to understand whatever makes God God in our understanding is the safest place for us to start. The more we try to figure him out and to make all of the dots connect and be able to explain everything that he's doing is nothing more than frustration. And it's actually a more subtle attempt to want to sit in his throne and say, I can't believe him unless I understand everything he's up to. And we have to be very careful not to do that. Instead, in humility, we can offer our praise to him. I'm so thankful he has his job and not me. Would you please stand? Let's close our time in prayer. Lord God, I want to thank you, Father, for the celebration that we get to express because of all that we've been given. Lord, you have saved people by the millions and billions throughout all history, and I know you're not done yet. Lord, I know that the that those that will uh, respond in their own choosing, by their own will, to your salvation are still before us. But Lord, we don't know who those people are, and yet you've given us a mission to share the saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to be obedient. Help us, Lord, to hold these things in tension, the things that we don't understand. Help us, Lord, to hold them in faith and to celebrate your strength, your might, and your wisdom in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.